The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Even though it was quite a flat speech, there were flashes of real hope and expectation here at the Conservative Party conference. To be honest, I thought the conference was very quiet, far fewer people than there have been for many years. If you're going to have a major economic change of direction, you need to do it in more than just sound bites. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm slightly disappointed you didn't actually put on a Margaret Thatcher voice for your no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with me, Liam Halligan, and ordinarily Alison Pearson. But Alison's taking a well-earned rest, so I'm delighted to welcome to Planet Normal, Telegraph columnist Nick Timothy. Hello, nice to be here. Now, Nick, while we missed the excellent co-pilot this week, Planet Normal listeners are in for a treat because you're not only a Telegraph columnist, you are also Joint Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Theresa May. So you know how government works and sometimes doesn't work, and likewise the Conservative Party, from the inside. My priorities are growth, growth and growth, said Liz Truss in her Birmingham conference speech yesterday, her first as Tory leader and Prime Minister. Was she channeling Tony Blair's education, education, education speech in 1997, his first as a Labour Prime Minister? The opponents of growth, Liz Trust went on, the vested interests, the forces of decline, they're wrong, wrong, wrong. That was clearly a throwback to Margaret Thatcher's famous oration from the Commons Dispatch Box, attempts by Brussels to dilute UK sovereignty. No, 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 said the Iron Lady back in 1990. But is Truss also an iron lady? Or were her and Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's attempts to lower the top rate of tax and scrap the cap on bankers' bonuses in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis politically tin-eared? It would certainly seem so, Nick, given this week's handbrake U-turn. So how do you think the Prime Minister and her staff are feeling after this week's visit to your native city of Birmingham? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I'm slightly disappointed you uh, didn't actually put on a Margaret Thatcher voice for your no-no-no then. no 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 no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think normally when people visit Birmingham, they feel really uplifted because it's the best city in the world. Uh, but I think, you know, it, it was a it was a very strange and flat atmosphere this week. There were lots of MPs who weren't present. And certainly in the fringes, the elephant in the room was the budget and what had happened in the markets since. My sense was when everybody mentioned it, they didn't really get angry. They just looked a bit hurt. And there was a kind of air of resignation to the whole thing. So that says quite a lot about the mood and the atmosphere of the party. But, you know, Liz's start has been extraordinary. I don't think there's been a prime minister with an agenda that unravels quite so quickly, certainly in my lifetime, and maybe never in modern democratic politics. It certainly felt very different to the Labour Party conference, which I was at in Liverpool, and we'll come on to that. But just before we discuss the party conference in more detail, and in particular, Liz Truss's speech yesterday, tell us what it's like in the run-up to a party conference for a prime minister. It must be a really, really busy time, and indeed during the party conference. Do you want to sleep for a week afterwards? <laughs> yeah, well, I think you need to sleep for a week after party conference, even if you're a humble delegate, as I am these days. The build up to conference is actually quite stressful. Yes, there's quite a lot of work to be done. And especially when you're a new PM and you have a new team in place, people are still getting to know one another and you want to flesh out your agenda and land your messages. You want the thing to cohere. You want your ministers speaking from the platforms, landing consistent messages, the speech for the leader itself. I mean, Liz's speech was actually pretty short but I mean ordinarily leaders tend to speak for around about an hour and they speak right across the waterfront of government policy she was much more focused and kept her comments mainly to the economy and her plan for growth but the speech itself is normally quite a stressful thing to prepare for she and everybody around her will have been quite wired I imagine in the run-up to this preparing for it not least because she's been preparing for it in the midst of the crisis that followed the budget now I should say Planet Normal of course was released on a Thursday Day, but I'm recording this on Wednesday, literally 
a couple of hours after Liz Truss's speech, as I'm recording, various stands and media centres are being dismantled around me. So that's why you're hearing the noise, the glamour of journalism. Hey, Nick, I agree with you. A quite a focused, tight speech by Liz Truss. I believe you know how best to spend your own money. She's told the party faithful. She also tried to explain that we're seeing interest rate rises across the world in the wake of Putin's war and COVID, with no mention of many, many years of massive central bank money printing and ultra-low interest rates after the 2008 financial crisis. I must say, even though it was quite a flat speech, there were flashes of real hope an expectation here at the Conservative Party conference. And one I was actually involved in personally because I was asked by Kemi Badenoch, who is, of course, the new Trade Secretary, to host a question and answer session on the main stage of the Conservative Party conference in lieu of her doing a conference speech. So I got to look into the whites of the eyes of the delegates who were watching Kemi Badenoch, who did very well in the leadership contest. And I saw real kind of sense of hope and expectation among them. It struck me that she was one of the darlings of this conference. Yeah, absolutely. Kemi is hugely popular with the members. I think she was already, actually. She's been sort of known to some degree for a little while, ever since she was first elected. I think spoke on the main conference stage one year and then really sort of burst onto the scene in the leadership contest where she not only spoke with great confidence and fluency, but had this really forthright and honest analysis of what she thought was going wrong with our politics politics in our society. And she's quite fond of saying that politics is downstream of culture. And this is why the culture wars actually matter and need to be fought quite resolutely from a conservative perspective. She is hugely popular with the members. What did you think of her if you managed to interrogate her on the stage? (laughs) It was hardly an interrogation. I mean, journalists understand if you are asked to do this, it's not meant to be a journalistic encounter. When I'm speaking on behalf of The Telegraph or GB News, where I apply my broadcasting trade, of course, then it's a journalistic encounter. On the stage, it's more of a kind of chat show type format, albeit a chat show with some pretty pointed political questions. I've known Kemi Badenoch for a while, not least because I live in Saffron Morden, which, of course, she is the member for the Saffron Morden constituency in North Essex. One of the questions I asked her, Nick, as you may have seen, is how long did it take you to decide to stand? Because, of course, when she announced that she was going to stand, a lot of people said, oh, it's too early. She's too young. She hasn't got enough experience. And then, you know, within a couple of weeks, there was talk about her coming through the middle and actually winning the thing for a while. And she was certainly a very influential candidate and probably the standout candidate who didn't actually win, though Penny Mordaunt supporters may have something to say about that. She's clearly tough. She's clearly very, very determined. And I said to her, you've got your husband, Hamish, you've got three kids, you're an engineer before you came into politics, you've clearly got a hinterland. And I expected her then to wax lyrical about her wonderful family and and all the rest of it. And when I asked her, clearly, you have a hinterland, Kemi, she looked at me and then she looked at the audience and she said, not now. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was a very human way of demonstrating a lot of determination and ambition. Yeah. No, I think she's really compelling. She has a real spark. And you can see sometimes with politicians, lots of them are perfectly adequate thinkers, administrators. And then every now and again, you get one who you can see just has this connection with people. And it's very difficult to explain what it is, why they're able to do it. You know, it is sometimes we talk about authenticity. Sometimes we talk about how direct people's communication is. She has those things, but she's got this sort of little bit of magic that you need to be a really, really top politician, I think. What did you think, Nick, looking on from outside? You're no longer a Downing Street insider. You're still steeped in politics and one of the best connected people in Britain in terms of this Conservative government. What did you think when you saw the 45p announcement, the reduction from 45p to 40p, the top rate of tax in Kwasi Kwarteng's mini budget? What did you think when you saw the U-turn coming and then finally executed? A pretty damaging episode and one that seems to me to have put the kibosh on actually lowering the top rate of tax to 40 pence for some time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's doomed as a proposal for some time now. From a political perspective, my personal view is it wasn't really the priority that they made it and wasn't really necessary at that moment. I'm very sceptical of the idea that tax cuts like that will 
fund themselves somehow. There's a danger, I think, of people either willfully or otherwise misunderstanding why the markets reacted in the way that they did. And it wasn't over just this particular tax cut decision. You've written in the paper the economic context in which the decision was made and years of quantitative easing, a very loose monetary policy, which I think is correct. But I think the point was they rushed straight into this emergency budget, which was actually quite unnecessary. I mean, they could have done their budget on a more normal timescale. And they didn't present a proper fiscal plan. You know, I talked to people in the city before the budget, after the budget. They said, well, there is a certain amount of tolerance and a certain amount of interest in some of the things that Liz and Quasi are promising, but we are concerned that they don't realise that there does need to be a very clear signal and a clear plan that there is an intention to pay back some of this borrowing in the medium term. And to me, I think the big problem was, yes, they refused to ask the OBR for a proper analysis. That's the Treasury watchdog, the Office for Budget Responsibility. I think some of the attacks on the institutions, even though I'm actually very sympathetic with the complaints about Treasury orthodoxy or the remit of the Bank of England and so on, those things, plus the complete absence of a fiscal plan, was what really undermined confidence in what they were about. And then we know what currency markets can be like, and sterling was suddenly in the spotlight. I agree with lots of that. I think the sort of political class, political journalists who, of course, dominate news coverage at the best of times, particularly at a time like this, alighted on the mini budget. And it was, in my view, a spark, but it wasn't the underlying cause of these market movements. The Bank of England, the day before, had only raised interest rates by half a percent. I say only, it's still quite chunky, but the market had been expecting three quarters of a percent. And there was a long fall in sterling during the days leading up even to that Bank of England decision. I would also say interest rates are going up everywhere around the world as part of that long-term trend as we move away from quantitative easing, as you said. And Liz Truss tried to get her arms around that idea, beginning to explain that in her conference speech. For now, she's only blaming COVID, lockdown and Putin's war. Now, both those aspects have had an impact on prices, not least COVID impact on supply chain disruption, which still lingers. And clearly, the war in Ukraine has done nothing to calm down global commodity prices and not least the wholesale price of gas. But I think there's a much bigger longer term trend here, which politicians having neglected years of easy money because it was frankly, very convenient for the folk in the city, the folk with housing. Asset prices went to the moon. It was convenient for governments to borrow cheaply. We are now going to have to face up to the fact that a lot of people have got themselves into house ownership at very, very low rates of interest with very elevated house prices. And as that situation unwinds, there will be quite a lot of pain. And it has been the Conservative Party who have been in power for nearly all that era of QE from 2009-10, a policy that was started under Gordon Brown and of course there was coalition in the early part of that decade and I think there's a determination among the political class to just not face up to this enormous policy and the unwinding of that policy in my view and some people accuse me of focusing on this too much I've been saying it for many many years which in my view the unwinding of that policy will be one of the major economic trends of our time and quite a disruptive trend Nick. Yeah I mean I talked about the consequences of Uh, of QE and super low interest rates for some time. And actually, funnily enough, I remember writing something into a speech by Theresa, which didn't criticise the decision to use QE. In fact, I think went out of its way to say it was necessary emergency medicine at the time of the financial crash. So it wasn't an attack on the bank. In the speech, there was criticism of the consequences and what it meant for inflated asset prices. And the reaction from the Bank of England and Mark Carney was incredibly sharp. There was a lot of sensitivity over there that. But within the Bank of England, you know, people like Andy Haldane, who was in the bank at the time, he was giving speeches and writing reports acknowledging that the distributive effects of QE were terrible. And they are. And this is one of those moments, Nick, in life where there's a nice sort of closing of a circle because I absolutely seized on those comments in that speech by Theresa May. And now I'm talking to the man who wrote them. I could have probably worked out that it was you, but we've never discussed it, have we? We haven't. I then wrote a sort of blood-curdling Sunday Telegraph column about it, which probably didn't make your life much easier. And the Bank of England crushed it. And I think the Bank of England has, if we're being honest, they crushed Andy Haldane, who was the chief economist at the Bank of England, a very, very bright, free-thinking economist who has now left the bank. This is somebody very much... 
insider who was warning about inflation rising, as I was, and I know you were as well, back in the spring of 2021 and almost laughed out of town. And it does seem to me that the economic policymaking establishment, what some Liz Truss acolytes might call the blob, have been very, very complacent here. Yet I noted in her speech, given the kicking that her government and her political ambitions or certainly political short-term plans have taken from financial markets in recent days and weeks, there was a quite an emollient line in the speech. I think the Bank of England should set interest rates and it's very important that politicians don't get involved. I sense there was a bit of a retreat there. Yes, I mean, you definitely get the sense that if it wasn't the governor, then some advisors who are, who listen closely to what market sentiment is might have said, you really do need to calm down this perception that you don't like the bank and that the government and the bank aren't working well together. I mean, I think that one of the things I would say is we have needed to get to a normal monetary policy and a proper balance between monetary and fiscal policy for some time. What we're seeing at the moment isn't just the result of straightforwardly doing that. It is partly the result of the fact that they did botch the budget because of the reasons that I said about the absence of a fiscal plan. And the consequences of that are economic in the sense that it might mean that interest rates go up higher and faster than they might otherwise have done. Also, the guilt yields are going up, which means the cost of government borrowing is going up. And that's all borrowing. Those guilt yields ripple out across the economy, don't they? to mortgages yeah, and do. other personal loans. They yeah. do, yeah. And then there's the political consequences, which basically means lots of things that might have happened anyway because as you say, interest rates were going to go up anyway, can now just be blamed firmly on the government by the Labour Party. And I think anything that anybody suffers over the next couple of years is going to be linked back to this budget. So Labour are going to say, the reason you're suffering this pain is because of the ideological and incompetent budget when Liz and Quasi first got into office. And it's so much easier for journalists, particularly broadcasters, headline writers to focus on Tory tax cuts, greed, than it is to explain you know, the unwinding of unconventional monetary policy, isn't it? if we're honest. Well, yeah, it's an incredibly complicated thing to describe. Lots of people, lots of highly educated policy people in government don't understand it. So how you convey it in a sort of quick half a minute on the TV news or something, this is quite often the case. I mean, we had the extraordinary intervention from the Bank of England last week in order to save pension funds, which were under extraordinary pressure because of complex hedging arrangements, which related to the gilt markets. And I think we were much closer to sort of losing a pretty big serious institution and maybe some kind of domino effect than people realise. But because it's so complex... I'm not sure that really registered with most people. I agree with you, Nick. And those complex hedging arrangements and the use of debt, so-called leverage to magnify profits, also magnify losses when things go wrong. Those complex arrangements were as a result of the ultra low interest rates and loose monetary policy because pension funds were being forced to buy gilts by regulatory diktats that were guaranteed to give negative returns because the gilt yields were so low because of the quantitative easing. Crikey, did I really just say that on a Telegraph podcast. <laughs> but this will become the stuff of mainstream news in the weeks and months ahead, or at least it should. Finally, Nick, before we move on to our Planet Normal guest, I wanted to ask you about conversations you have. You don't have to name names unless you want to with MPs. I talked to many, many MPs. I was lucky enough to secure a sit-down interview with Kwasi Kwarteng. I spoke to various members of the cabinet. The really sort of striking trend that I felt leaving Birmingham now is how few MPs there were here. Now, clearly, Liz Trust didn't have a huge following among the parliamentary party. Very low numbers of them endorsed her as party leader. She won a very tight three-way race during that aspect, that part of the leadership campaign. And of course, you've got the excuse that the RMT Rail Union put a strike on Wednesday, making it difficult for the Tory faithful to get home. So many of the MPs either didn't turn up or they left before the leader's speech on Wednesday. Yeah, I think lots of them just didn't turn up. To be honest, I thought the conference was very quiet far fewer people than there have been for many years. I think in you know in some cases, the thing that you heard people saying was I'm very upset about the budget. If I go, I basically don't have anything positive to say at the moment, so I'd better just keep my silence for a while. After the budget, the chapter was, well, it would be ridiculous to get rid of Liz at this stage. It would look very silly in front of the voters, but maybe we can try and force her hand and constrain her in terms of the choices she has. And then after the trouble the markets with pension funds and then the YouGov poll that put the Tories down on 21 points. And Labour 33 points ahead. 33 points ahead, yeah. That's wipeout territory for the Tories, isn't it? Yeah. 
then, then, to be honest, there was a kind of meltdown among MPs and, and the mentality shifted and people did start openly talking about whether she would need to be removed. Wow. Another possible leadership contest. Another Tory psychodrama. Could it happen, Nick Timothy? Could she be, as Alison and I christened her, the Lady Jane Grey of our times? Could her tenure really be that short? Look, it's not impossible. I think we live in very strange times. We live in an age of crises where one crisis just seems to just go crashing into the next one. Voter volatility is a real thing. And I'm in 2019 election, which was fantastic for the Tories. I think I put this in the paper the next day. It's fantastic. But the danger is now, because of the realignment in the vote, that the Tories would be exposed on both fronts, where you'd have a lot of marginal seats where people had voted Tory this time, but actually it was the only time in their lives where they had, you know, in the Red Wall. But that actually the Tories was vulnerable in some of their more traditional seats where maybe people felt that the party was moving away from their interests. And so the party is quite vulnerable on both fronts. And lots of MPs, you know, I spoke to an MP the other day who has a majority, I'm sure the majority is more than 20,000. And they said, well, with boundary changes, it's a little bit less, actually. I'm starting to get a bit worried. So there are people in seats where they thought that they'd be an MP for life who are now worrying about the next election. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. And you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, Mine! As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Climbing aboard the rocket this week is an old friend of Planet Normal, Baroness Claire Fox. Having grown up in Wales, Claire worked as a social worker and higher education lecturer before becoming a publisher of Living Marxism. She emerged as an erudite and widely respected public intellectual, her frequent appearances on the BBC's Moral Maze turning her into a household name. She went on to set up an influential cross-party think tank, the Academy of Ideas. A lifelong Eurosceptic, Claire surprised many on the left when in 2019 she was elected as a Brexit Party MEP. And she's since surprised herself by being elevated to the House of Lords as Baroness Fox of Buckley. Claire Fox attended the Labour and Conservative conferences, speaking at countless fringe meetings and testing the mood. I caught up with her in Birmingham and started by asking her for her thoughts on how the Tories were doing. This has been the weirdest conference I've been to of the Conservative Party in as much as there is definitely an existential crisis happening. Funnily enough, actually, the fringe events have been quite lively. Usually, to be honest, people are going through the motions, but a lot of them have been packed. And when I've talked to people, they've said... Actually, there's more politics here than there is in the conference. And there's something about watching your party kind of die or have a crisis that isn't appealing. So they want to talk, they want to listen, but they don't want to go into conference hall necessarily to kind of witness it. Liz Truss has spent her whole life trying to become prime minister. She's made it. This is her first conference as party leader. This is meant to be a honeymoon period. It must be depressing for her to realise that she has made it and made a mess of it with it such a short amount of time. You see, I don't think it's even what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng did. I think this is kind of like a long time coming. There's still a lot of bitterness amongst voters anyway and some members that Boris was got rid of, not by them. You know what I mean? They, were, they weren't all Boris lovers, but they just felt it was something of a coup. So there's that to contend with. There's the hangover of lockdown. People feel very betrayed. What was that about? And a Conservative Party that, after all, had previously got themselves in a complete and total mess over Brexit, having called a referendum and then tried to overthrow it. There's a lot of history here, isn't there? And I think now what we've got is a leadership that a lot of the members just feel Liz Truss was better than Rishi, but they don't really want her as the leader, so it's a very mixed view. She hasn't got a loyal base in this party. Of course, this conference has been dominated so far by uh, the U-turn on the top rate of income tax, 
But all Kwasi Kwarteng was doing, Claire, was taking it back to 40%, 40p in the pound. It was there throughout the Blair Brown years. This is not a radical policy. Why did it go so wrong? Was it the timing? I think it was the timing. I think it was throwing it all at the nation at once and then not explaining what you were doing. I mean, what did they think? You think you can kind of play games like this? You throw out something that whether you like it or not is going to be interpreted as help the rich and bad timing and all the rest of it. And they could have gone on the telly every night and explained it. They could have had town hall meetings throughout. Quasi Quartang, perfectly entitled to go and have drinks with hedge fund. I don't care about that, fine, right? That's the kind of thing you do as a chancellor. The next day, you should have organised a Northern Conference with all those red wall MPs and yeah. talked to them about it. But what happened was they literally disappeared. The narrative turned, nobody knew what was going on, and therefore they weren't there to compete with what this was about. And I agree, it was not the way it's been described as radical, even the irony here is, as I'd want it to be, because the biggest mm. problem for me is the rhetoric on growth is brilliant. Create a bigger cake, right? But where is the detail on increasing productivity, on building new industries, on directing in any way what would happen if you simply remove the barriers to growth? It doesn't mean they're going to invest productively in anything. Some people are just going to get rich. And so I just feel as though they almost abandoned the country they enjoyed a couple of days of people saying they're radical. Mm. Then when it went wrong, they didn't have even the cabinet on board, let alone the parliamentary party, because they'd not told them. They'd not justified it to them. Now, as the director of the Academy Ideas, it's a think tank. It's very much a cross-party think tank. You come across all kinds of policies, and obviously you bring up lots of different policies in your role in the House of Lords. This is, in some senses, a policy driven conference, isn't it? We've been talking lots about benefit uplift. The benefit was increased by 3.1% in March in Rishi Sunak's spring statement because that was the rate of inflation back in September and we uprate benefits by the previous rate of inflation. Now they're saying they may not uprate benefits by the current rate of inflation. We're at 9.9% inflation. Can they afford not to do that? Even members of the cabinet Penny Morden are saying, how can we not uprate benefits by the basic rate of inflation? Well, because they've actually managed to allow this narrative to emerge of them only protecting the rich and the poor suffering, it means that this policy becomes very awkward to implement. I feel as though of all the things that they need to save money on, this is not it. But there's, a, I, I suppose partly you have to treat the population as grown-ups, right? I think that what they should have been doing and what we need to explain to people is that interest rates were artificially low yeah. and that that made money too cheap and that that meant that people overextended themselves and people thought that that could carry on. One of the problems is that what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng did did not increase interest rates. But they didn't explain that interest rates were going to have to go up. And they, a long-term long -term trend. As we escape from the ultra-low rates of the post-global yeah. financial crisis period. And also, even longer than that, stagnation in the productive economy in this country is, is a long time since been a problem. And if they're trying to address it, you have to talk to people about it. I'm not just saying this to flatter you, but I've just been talking to one of my colleagues who's nearly finished reading your book on housing and saying how brilliant it was. But the point he was making was he thought he knew a lot about housing. He's reading your book and he's learning a lot more. And you just think each issue is not a headline. It's got a lot to it. There's a lot to discuss. And if you're going to have a major economic change of direction, you need to do it in more than just sound bites. You've got to, therefore, go out and explain what you're doing. We are in the middle of a sort of policy recalibration, aren't we? We're going from a world of very loose monetary policy and tighter fiscal policy to a world where we're battling inflation now and you have tight monetary policy and looser fiscal policy. In other words, the Bank of England was keeping interest rates low and printing lots of money on the monetary side and we had fiscal policy that some characterised as austerity. Now the Bank of England has to turn the screw to bear down on inflation by raising interest rates and hopefully not printing as much money as they were. The fiscal side needs to be a little bit looser, tax and spend, with tax cuts, maybe with a bit more spending, to help the population get through the tighter monetary policy. Some, Claire, say that that's 
working uh, against each other. Some say that's a clash between the Bank of England uh, and the Treasury. I don't think it's a clash. I think it's part of a balanced policy outcome. I think that that's the point. But who else has explained No, that? but exactly. You just explained something. But I want another level, which is I want them to also talk about, when they talk about growth, how they're going to do it. I don't mean, you know, that the state sets everything up, but you do need some leadership. You've got to yeah. just sit back. And that's the reason that I'm emphasising that, because I think people are unconvinced that the policy they've announced, which they haven't explained, will be the thing which will motor growth. And you can't also say to the population growth will happen overnight, because it won't. You need to have a long-term strategy. Take risks. You need to invest in, you know, R&D that won't have immediate results, and some of it won't work at all. And there's something gone wrong with the monetarisation of society in a way where even the capitalists think that they should be have a guarantee on making money. Yeah. It's, like, it's not like that. You're meant That's to right. be the ones who go out and take the daring do That's entrepreneurial right. approach. Everybody wants easy, cheap money. Everybody. And that's not a satisfactory way of running an economy. And when you get into difficulties, it causes real problems. But these are the conversations that need to be happening. And I'm just saying that if you're going to go out and, as a chancellor, kind of boast that you've got this new plan... Show a bit of respect for the population. Say it's going to hurt. Also, I think we all know, don't we? I mean, you don't just lock down the whole economy under lockdown and not have any consequence of yeah. that, for just as the, the most recent problem that we've had. And so you need to say to people, and there'll be strikes. People will fight back. People will argue against you. You have to decide on your priorities within that. I would suggest not being inhumane and being sensitive, particularly to people on benefits. I mean, of all the people, I don't want to screw over. But there's going to be fights and arguments and discussions. What you don't do is run away and you don't present it as though it's an easy win because they were effectively saying, this will solve everything. Don't worry about it. Everyone will be fine. And people are being condescended to. They sort of know that's not true and they won't have explanations with any depth given to them. Now, you are very much these days, if I may say so, you know, a face around the House of Lords. You run this very important think tank uh, in the middle of London. But in your heart, Claire Fox, you are an out of London person, aren't you? You are a person who knows that the, the regions, the highways and byways of this country. How do you think they're being perceived outside the Westminster bubble? This is planet normal. We're all about news and views from beyond the bubble. How is all this going down outside this steel ring in Birmingham, outside the media and policy establishment? So I do feel as though those red wall seats, what are known in this party, the Conservative Party, is the blue-collar Conservatives, feel actually, if I'm honest, totally betrayed. And I don't mean they feel betrayed because uh, tax cuts were given to the rich. It's more that they feel as though the levelling up agenda, which is always a uh, ridiculous term, but what is actually happening? What are they doing to invest in Grimsby, Has it in Bolton, in Blackburn? It's exactly it's a good slogan. Great slogan, but even here there's something rather, we're going to level them up and help the poor people. What people want is their communities to start thriving and growing again. And I actually think if you called on the nation, good way to dare I say, <laughs> and said to people, we've all got to put our back into this, we've got to rebuild the economy. I mean, we've had lockdown, we've had a terrible time of it, Remember that Brexit take back control? Well, now it's all our responsibilities to get things going again. Let's have discussions about what kind of housing we need, what kind of infrastructure we need to build, what kind of new towns we need to create, what industries we're going to actually invest in, take risks on. But people are sitting there frustrated because they feel like it's a top-down, chip-down, oh, God, what policy are they announcing now? No explanation given. And then... A U-turn. I mean, the U-turn is funny because I don't even think it was that top tier. I don't think that's what caused the problem for people. It was all at once and then no explanation. And also the alarm that the pound was crashing. Exactly. I mean, mean, I'm alarmed. Interest rates in money markets were spiking. But as I said to the Chancellor earlier this morning, I interviewed him for GB News. Chancellor, you know, shouldn't you be explaining that your mini budget was the spark? It wasn't the underlying no, cause. Right. The underlying cause was a long-term systemic move away from ultra-low, ridiculously low interest rates, ridiculously loose monetary policy, mega money printing, 
And that's what's happening. We're moving out of that world and into a more normal world. I know, but this is what's ironic. The reason why they won't explain that they were the spark is because that policy was theirs too. Yeah. And they were prepared to take, this government were prepared to take credit for the fact that there was cheap credit. Yeah. So they'd basically say, oh, isn't it brilliant? Yeah. You can all buy your house now. You're all doing all right. And because we were just about doing all right, artificially created by the printing of money, by low interest rates, they now don't want to say that was a disaster, by the way, and that created all these problems. It's like no one's ever read any history. Know. You know, If yeah. it was this easy, Rome would still have a massive empire. Yeah. If it was this yeah. easy, printing money all the time, Zimbabwe would be in the G7. No, no. And we've got a chancellor now who's a historian. We've got a Bank of England governor who's a historian. They're both extremely clever people. You can't say that they haven't got the intellectual firepower, but nobody, Claire, seems to be taking a historic perspective on this. But the, one of the problems is they don't believe that the citizens of this country are up to understanding it. What they've got to realise is that actually people might not have their A-levels or their degrees, but people don't have to do that to be smart and interested and interested in history. Understanding the historic roots of this is essential. Understanding what has happened over time to this country, but also understanding what has happened in other countries in similar circumstances is the kind of conversations we need to be having. And I think that the other thing about this conference, one of the downsides of it being dominated by this conversation is that there are also important conversations. I mean, I just spoken on a fringe event on the online safety bill, and you might say, oh, God, is that old chestnut? But, you know, Liz Trust says she'll tweak it. She's not getting rid of it. There are major attacks on yeah. free speech, and there's a real problem of censorship, which actually is not going to do any of us any good if we're trying to actually work out how to make the economy work. You need to have free and open discussion. There's all of the identity politics stuff, which still lurks around as a problem. And this is not me trying to play the culture warrior. I really liked, actually, a point that was made by Kemi Badenoch in an interview with you, no less, <laughs> Liam, yesterday. You allowed her and asked the kind of questions that allowed her to really explain where she stood. And I liked something she said very much because she said, I'm not just raising these immigration points as a culture warrior. It drives me mad when people say that. It's yeah. just that these are serious conversations we need to have. Yeah. Even the immigration discussion is not straightforward. You can't just kind of go, we've got a Rwanda policy versus bring them in. I mean, that's another thing that Liz Truss has done that is rather unhelpful from her point of view, which is she just simply announced, well, we'll loosen immigration. And that's cheap labour to boost growth. That means cheap labour. And then exploited. some people in the party will be saying, oh, that's why she's really a Remain voter. She doesn't get at least some of the animus behind Brexit was for control borders, yeah. as well as I mean, you were a Brexiteer because it was yeah. about sovereignty yeah. you and democracy and pushing back against a sort of Brussels-based oligarchy, right? But for a lot of people, we should admit it was about control. Yeah, there was. And, and they'll be suspicious of Liz Of course they will. But also, I think it's really cynical to treat people as economic units you can exploit cheaper. I mean, even though I'm much more liberal on immigration than some of my fellow Brexiteers, I want it to be thought through. And you have to have control of your borders in order to think it through. So can we raise that issue? I'm making the point that some of these very important issues have not been discussed at this conference properly, in fringe meetings occasionally, but not on conference floor, not really discussed. And there is no sense that conference is a place for the Conservative Party to thrash through some of these issues. Now, I don't want to pretend. I mean, everybody was in brilliant form at Labour Party conference, and although I haven't been invited back since I came out as a Brexiteer, they were all in great form, but they avoided some of these big issues as well. So there is a real problem if only the economic questions get discussed and that only becomes trading insults and at the most superficial level. All parties try and choreograph their party conference, don't they? They know the media are here and running around with cameras on their shoulders and microphones in their hands. And that's why the fringe is so important because real politics breaks out on the fringe. The party faithful have come together in one place. Even in this Zoom world, physical proximity really sparks debate, rhetoric, passion, exchanges of views, honest exchanges of views. But I want to ask you, Claire, as an outsider at this conference, but somebody intensely interested in politics and who cares deeply about the future of this country, how worried are you that the natural party of government, some would say, are in the state that they're in so few weeks into this new administration? I am worried because I think that the danger is that it will make people nihilistically cynical about politics. 
ordinary voters just think, what is going on? I have not been convinced by anything I've seen here that the party can pull itself together. If anything, it feels like the party's going to split. I think what's probably happened is that, in many ways, the Conservative Party has run out of its natural life. We can see in every other European country, the mainstream parties have collapsed and new parties have emerged. But because of First Past the Post here, Labour and Tories exist, but they're almost like holograms of their old parties, right? They don't really know what they are. And here, there is a real tension between those blue-collar Tories who represent red wall seats of just very different, often from working-class backgrounds, just a different yeah. kind of entity. And uh, there is that kind of Singapore on the Thames, Brexiteers, you know, they've got a particular attitude. And then you've got all the Remainers. Remember, the, the Tory party were the Remain party during yeah. most of the referendum. So it seems to me that it's not a real party. And somehow, temporarily, Boris held it together. In a bizarre sort of way, everybody backed him in the end after the 2019 debacle at the European elections. He's gone. I'm not sure that Liz Truss is the woman to hold it together. And after this start, and I'm worried, not because I care about the fate of the Conservative Party, but because I care about the fate of politics. Claire Fox, Baroness Fox, Director of the Academy Ideas. Brilliant to have you, as ever, on Planet Normal. And I should say, the Battle of Ideas, the festival run by the Academy of Ideas, is being held in central London in the middle of October, I believe, the 15th and the 16th of October, and people can attend that, they can buy tickets. I'd love to see you all there. Liam is not only speaking, but his band is performing. I mean, <laughs> take that. <laughs> it's been said. And we should say also, here's a competition, just spontaneously, Planet Normal listeners, email us why Baroness Claire Fox is your favorite peer of the realm, and Claire will pick out two of the answers that she likes and they will get free tickets to the Battle of Ideas on the 15th and the 16th of October. Deal, Claire? Absolute deal. Be as nice as you want, but you can also be offensive and I might still make you win as well. <laughs> well, there she is, Nick Timothy, Baroness Claire Fox. She and you are from very different political necks of the woods, if you like. But did you agree with her on anything? Uh, yeah, I think Claire is always really worth listening to and I thought that was a really great interview. She always has very, very interesting things to say. The thing about conference and the thing about the place the Tories in at the moment, and you can say, well, the first five years of Tory-led government was with the coalition. You can say a few years were lost because of the Brexit wars, a couple of years more were lost because of COVID. But we have had 12 years of Conservative government now. And one of the features of that 12 years is the way the party has really change direction quite abruptly, which at each moment, apart from maybe with Liz, where the public seems to not like the change, at each moment, it has served the party quite well. So you've gone from Cameron and Osbornism and fiscal consolidation into Theresa talking about good government and being more accepting of the role of the state. Then you went into Boris and his cakeism and levelling up. And in each of those elections, 15, 17, 19, the Tory vote share increased reasonably significantly. But the problem is it means that there's a sort of lack of coherence now when you look back across those 12 years and you sort of ask, what has that been? And you've created all these new factions, some of whom are angry about each of the changes. So there's not very much unity of purpose in the Conservative Party now. I spoke to quite a lot of younger MPs here at the party conference and their sense privately is maybe your party does need some time out of office to reboot, to regroup, to renew. Now on to our listener emails. Please keep your wonderful and often very moving messages coming. We love reading them and we learn so much from you, our Planet Normal listeners. Your mails are the lifeblood of our show. This is from Dan, not his real name. Dear Alison and Liam, I'm the father of a teenage girl who declared at the start of the summer holidays that she was trans. Since the start of this term, her school and her mum have affirmed this and are socially transitioning her at school without my consent or any professional advice. They're getting mermaids involved at the suggestion of the school. Mermaids, of course, is a trans activist charity. 
My daughter's told me that her end goal is to be a full physical male. I can see that she is most likely a confused teenager, most probably lesbian, girl captured by trans ideology. I'm also convinced that some of this was driven by overconsumption of pro-trans social media and YouTube videos during and since the social isolation of lockdown. I'm concerned that she's now going to be encouraged down that path before most likely regretting it in a few years' time, like so many of the emerging stories of the de-transitioners, such as Kira Bell. My ex-wife says she's just taking it one step at a time, so hasn't even had the conversation about the ultimate end goal. I tried to speak to her, but our divorce was difficult and recent. We were living under the same roof for the whole of the first lockdown, and she is closing down discussion. I feel like I'm watching my child in a slow-motion car crash and feel helpless, and even more desperate given this is being encouraged, albeit mostly, I'm sure, from a misguided sense of kindness, by her school and her mother. As such, can I just thank you for your work on Planet Normal, including Alison's article in July. My story will clearly evolve over time, but your efforts are so gratefully received. Please wish me luck. This feels like the battle of my life. Like so many others, your Planet Normal podcast helped support me through the trauma of lockdown. Thanks from Dan, not his real name, a desperate West Midlands dad. This is from Bill, who says he's booked his tickets for the Planet Normal event in central London on Wednesday the 19th of October, where Liam and Alison will be talking to Lord David Frost, very great man, and the author Lionel Shriver. Bill says... Isn't it the case that our democratic system of a general election every five years has proved an unsuitably short window within which to address strategically important long-term investment decisions? Might the country be better served by creating cross-party committees with, say, 10 to 15-year remits and associated budgets to tackle challenges such as the energy supply policy and NHS reform? That really harks back to your comments, Nick, about electoral reform, the potential of that coming on the horizon. When people get disillusioned with mainstream politics, and there's certainly that happening across Europe, including in our country, there are often calls for some kind of electoral system changes. This is from Ian. Hello, Liam and Alison. Excellent interview with Gerard Lyons on the last podcast and a very fair appraisal of the mini-budget. Dr Gerard Lyons, of course, is a very prominent economist, a former chief economic advisor to Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London. Ian goes on, For all Truss's talk of delivery, the financial statement was badly delivered, with a worrying amount of high-vis on display, which I thought would end with the defenestration of Boris. But trust is generally moving in the right direction, says Ian, hence all the wailing and gnashing. This seems like an almighty battle over the future of cheap money. I think the country needs trust to succeed, even if they don't know it. But removing the banker's cap and the 45% tax rate at the same time was bad politics. And ending the fracking moratorium's bad politics too, as it won't deliver any significant gas before the election, if ever. And how HS2 still survives, says Ian, the current economic situation is unexplainable. And good to hear you got your old hello back, Alison. Best wishes, Ian, there. And a little comment at the end about the ongoing debate about how Alison Pearson says hello at the top of our podcast. Keep the emails coming. This is from Victoria. Alison and Liam. Being a bearer of very little economic brain, I simply cannot understand the mass hysteria that has been brought on by the Chancellor's mini-budget statement. I'd always believed that the Conservatives stuck to the mantra of individual responsibility, a small state and light regulation. To have more of one's own money to spend as you see fit, and not the big hand of the nanny state to delve into your wallet and splurge on pet projects of whoever was in number 10 at the time. Surely people have got used to record low interest rates and cheap borrowing, and now reality is kicking in after the disaster of the lockdowns and excessive government borrowing. Some of us oldies remember times when interest rates were 15% and there was nothing in the fridge, but apparently us boomers are to blame for most things these days. Thank you again from Victoria. You know, that's an interesting one, Nick, as you all know. It's not about where the interest rate is, it's about what we call mortgage affordability, the share of your income post-tax that you're spending on your mortgage. That did peak at about 30% back in the early 90s, in the aftermath of the Black Wednesday debacle as we came out of the ERM. And it's now a lot less. It's more like 10 to 15%. But if interest rates go up to just 6%, Nick, 
on economic modelling that I've seen and examined, then we will be back up at late 80s, early 90s levels of mortgage affordability, or should that be unaffordability, even at much lower headline rates of interest. And finally, Nick, this is from John, an email that follows from Alison's column about Giorgio Maloney, who emerged, of course, as the clear winner in the Italian election back in late September, putting her on course to form a new coalition at a fraught time for Italy's economy. John says, how sad that we've arrived at the point where the most dangerous woman in Europe, in quotes, is not the unelected president of an unelected commission, but an elected leader of a major democracy, Giorgio Maloney. Perhaps Ursula van der Leyen, who of course is the EU commissioner, she should stop pretending that she represents Europe, in quotes, or the millions of EU citizens, in quotes, who are not allowed to vote for her, says John. And Andrew says on the same theme, the new definition of a fascist seems to be this, to be Christian, to have family values, to believe in law and order. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's my turn. And I think, Nick, you would agree with me... Dan, not his real name, a really heartfelt email. Dan, not his real name's daughter, is transitioning and he clearly feels frightened and helpless. A genuinely brave and heartfelt email, I felt. So, Dan, not your real name, please do email us at planet.normal at telegraph.uk. Mark your email, mug winner, with your postal address. And as rare as hen's teeth, as rare as rocking horse poo, Planet Normal mug will be winging its way toward you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find the podcast so the Planet Normal family can keep on growing. It certainly does. And here's a reminder, again, that Planet Normal Live's back for its second instalment and you're invited. In May, we recorded our landmark 100th episode. And on Wednesday, October the 19th, we're recording live at the historic IET in central London, Alison and I. We will be talking to the renowned author and journalist Lionel Shriver and the life peer Lord David Frost, both speaking to your co-pilots in person. Expect straight talking and reasoned debate with a broad dash of planet normal humour. Tickets are £30 for Telegraph subscribers and you can find the link to where you can get your tickets via the Telegraph website in the show notes to this episode. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks to Nick Timothy political analyst extraordinaire telegraph columnist and thanks as ever to our producers isabel bouchard elliot lampitt and our editor zoe hitch stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week it is goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer.